Good morning to you all. Uh, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. I just have to uh, express my joy at seeing Sarah here this morning. Uh, yes, that's worthy of applause. Yes, and gratitude. Uh, As you know, I've been a pastor for a long time, and every time someone's gone into the hospital, I've you know been admitted to the hospital. I just go right there, and uh, I got the word, no, no, no. It was very frustrating, but I was, because I, I can just imagine, you know, having. A dangerous disease and laying there you can feel really lonely and I was so impressed Sarah with your endurance and your faith that you talked to me on the phone thank God for phones uh, so unusual times and yet the Lord keeps us and he's good he's good through it all well, these next two chapters complete the first half of the book of Revelation. And uh, it is a challenging book to understand. And I'm trying really hard to help us benefit from the book in a way that we don't, in such a way that we don't get lost in the weeds. And 2,000 years after this book was written, it's a lot's been said about it, and it's quite easy to get lost in the weeds. Uh, if you're a Christian, and so I want to introduce the chapter this way, because I think it will help you benefit from these two chapters. If you're a Christian, and you believe in a good and powerful God who loves you, you're going to have to learn how that squares with the trials of your life. And you will be especially challenged by the mistreatment that comes your way because you are a Christian. And you could argue that the book of Revelation has given us an answer to the very question, how should we respond when we are attacked? Or how should we respond when we are seduced, when we are tempted to depart from the faith. Uh, we do have options. We could withdraw from society and keep to ourselves, move to the mountains of West Virginia, run an internet business distributing specialty paper products and other common items. We could do that. We could go along with the powers that be simply to get along. We could repeat the required slogans even though we don't believe them. We could submit to our persecutors and adopt their view of life and give in to their temptations. We could attack our persecutors using the same methods that they use. And you see all of that at play in the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. All seven churches faced pressures that we'll see symbolically acted out in chapters 12 and following. Some of these churches were faithful, some were not. Some were mixed, 
all in differing ways. Chapter 10 and 11, though, offer uh, an alternative to the options that I just laid out about responding to resistance and temptation for our faith. Here's the alternative. We stand and witness to the gospel wherever God has placed us, and that's where we take our hits, knowing that God will not only judge our persecutors, but he will protect us and ultimately deliver us to a kingdom where persecution does not exist. We stand, this is what the book gives us, we stand because we see Jesus standing. He depended on his father when he walked this earth. He stood the test that we don't have to stand. And he's standing for us today. Chapters 10 and 11 are an interlude in the book, chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9, if you recall, we have six trumpets of judgment that sound. And then at the end of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounds. So this interlude would give us an idea of things that the questions God's people would have while enduring these announcements of these six announcements of judgment to come on the earth. Now, one way, and I I think a good way to look at these chapters, is that they teach us how to think and act in a world under judgment. How do you think and how do you act in a world under judgment? A world under judgment which has a tendency to attack the people of God in response. You could compare it to the guy who gets fired from his job for poor performance and goes home and kicks his dog. Uh, The Lord brings his word to bear on those who resist his rule, and they go home and kick God's servants. we got a long history of this to uh, learn and read about. These two chapters teach us how to live while the six trumpets are blowing. So in chapter 10, they tell us that it is sweet to hear promises of Jesus establishing his kingdom, but living through those promises, promises of judgment will be bitter. That's chapter 10. First two part, the first part of chapter 11, we see that God will protect his people as they proclaim his gospel, even if it leads to their death. And then finally, at the end of chapter 11, the kingdoms of the world will finally submit to the kingdom of our Lord. We always have to keep that in mind. So let's walk through these two chapters ever so briefly, given the time constraints. Number one, it's sweet to hear promises of Jesus establishing his kingdom, but living through it will be bitter. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven churches sounded, and when the seven churches, 
And, and the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from, from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. When the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, then he spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The figure in verse 1 is called an angel. But his description echoes the description of the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1, as well as the figure of God on his throne in Ezekiel chapter 1. Just as the Lamb in chapter 5 is the only one to open the scroll, it would lead you to think that we should identify this angel with Jesus. The argument against that is nowhere in the book of Revelation is Jesus referred to as an angel. So, But whether or not this is an angel or Jesus, if it is simply an angel, he clearly comes as Jesus' messenger. And that's what angels are. They are messengers. In verse 2, he sets one foot on land and one on sea. He rules the entire earth. He allows John to hear the seven thunders in verses 3 and 4, but he forbids John to record them. And I, I actually find this encouraging. I think we can conclude from this that there are elements of God's judgments on the world that he does not reveal. Revelation doesn't tell us everything there is to know. It tells us just enough to know to endure in faith and patience. So we have in Revelation, that's all we need. We don't have to have everything. The little scroll announces that there will be no delay in bringing to pass the events of final judgment announced by the seventh trumpet. In fact, the little scroll inaugurates the final judgments. When John eats the scroll, it tastes sweet. And this is a direct allusion to Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel's call to be a prophet. Let me read that to you. Uh, Ezekiel 3, and the Lord God said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Very similar to Revelation 10. 
So by eating, Ezekiel accepts the message of the scroll, identifies with the message of the scroll. He takes it into himself. But after eating, the Lord tells Ezekiel that his prophetic message will be ignored by the exiles from Israel. So it's a sweet message, but it gets ignored. In Revelation, John responds just like Ezekiel. He embraces and identifies with the message, but the sweetness of the scroll in his mouth gives him a stomachache. It's bitter. John's call is not simply to prophesy to the church, but to many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It could be that the message is bitter to John because, like Ezekiel, it's rejected. But I think more likely it's bitter because living through what he prophesies will be hard. And we see that in chapter 11. And even further, no true prophet takes pleasure in God's judgments on the wicked. We take pleasure in the gospel. But the judgment that comes with rejection of the gospel is not something we delight in. May we never be happy when we see the downfall of the wicked. May we rejoice that God brings justice, temporary justice and ultimate justice. But it should not give us any joy to see the downfall of the wicked and them even receiving the fruit of their rebellious ways. So John comes to realize, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah before him, he must prophesy sweet truths with bitter results. Listen, we don't get to choose where we were born or where we live or the time we live in. And what we're going to see in chapter 11 is that we're called to preach the gospel, as Paul said to Timothy, in season and out of season. The gospel is so sweet to us, but living as a subject in Jesus' kingdom can be a bitter experience. So let's look at some of that in chapter 11, uh, second section of this sermon. God will protect his people as they proclaim his gospel, even if it leads to their death. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was 
crucified for three and a half days from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to put them, let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to them who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud And their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So this is describing what happens during the period of the sixth trumpet. This chapter and I'm not just saying this for me, you read the scholars, this chapter is very hard to interpret, and it has a lot of approaches. So the question, is the temple of verses 1 and 2 a literal future temple, or a symbolic temple, or a heavenly temple? It's not clear. Are the two witnesses of verses 3 through 13, who are they? Over the last 1,900 years, we have had them interpreted as, don't try to write this down, Enoch and Elijah, or Jeremiah and Elijah, or John the Apostle and James the brother of Jesus, who was a bishop of Jerusalem, or two Christian prophets martyred by the emperor Titus, or two individual prophets uh, modeled on Zerubbabel and Joshua in the book of Zechariah, or two witnesses who symbolize the church and not actual individual people. Now, why does this get so complicated? I sat puzzling over this. I think one of the problems we face is that If you really want to understand Revelation as a whole, you usually have to bring some kind of a theological framework that you put on the book. And then you try to interpret each chapter consistent with that framework. So is this a book about past events that we're all done now? Is this a book about only future events? Is this a description of world history through the ages to the end? Is this a book about only the last days, the last years before Jesus comes back? Or is this a book that's about every age, repeating over and over again? I think you have to have some basic framework. My own framework would be a hybrid of these different systems. And I want to explain to you why. I think it might help you. The problem with any theology is that if you're not careful, your theology will force your interpretation of the text. Good theology grows out of the text. You understand the text as it's given to you, and then you build a theological framework from that. And it's kind of a back and forth. And this is how we interpret the whole Bible. So 
you look at the text and you try to understand the language of the text and then you look at the text in the framework of the larger book and then you look at other books like we're going to look at, uh, we looked at Ezekiel, you look at Zechariah, you look at Daniel and you try to come up with an understanding of what's going on. It's really easy to force an interpretation. Now I say this because I want to be open and honest with you all that I don't have this all figured out, and it can be easy, especially in a very brief sermon, to kind of smooth the whole thing out and give the impression that I have the last word on this book. I do not. Revelation opens with a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. So the book's intention is that you can listen to it, understand it, and respond to it rightly, and that's a blessing. So this book is supposed to be a blessing to us, not a confusion. Most of the book is symbolic to one degree or another, and it presents us with a kaleidoscope of images that show us how to live as disciples at the end of the age. So in a half-hour sermon, I don't have time to give you every option for interpreting chapter 11. I'm just trying to do what's best and trying to be faithful to the text, not to get it to say more than what it says and not to get it to say less than what it says. And I really like what New Testament scholar Grant Osborne says about all the choices of interpreting chapter 11. This is what he says. I wonder, I wonder if we have to choose between a literal and symbolic meaning. I think he's onto something there. In fact, that's how Old Testament prophecy works. The prophet makes a prediction for his own day, and it comes to pass in that day, but that prediction then begins to resonate through the ages, and then you see it fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. But his coming, his coming's not he came and he left and he's coming again. And so it continues to resonate throughout the church age. And so I think that God intends that here we are in the 21st century. We're to be blessed in our reading and understanding and application of this book. But also to recognize that there may be a fuller and even more literal interpretation of the book that comes at the end of the age. So anyway... <laughs> Let's get back to the text. In verses 1 and 2, John measures the temple, which immediately brings Ezekiel 40 to 48 in mind, where Ezekiel measures a new city, which is actually a temple city uh, at the end of the age. In that description, a, a restored temple sits in the middle of a restored city prepared for the people of God who would dwell there. Uh, the, last books of, the last words of the book of Ezekiel are these. The name of that city will be, the Lord is there. So surely the first hearers of this book had Ezekiel's temple in mind when they hear that John is asked to measure the temple. The measurement in Revelation is not to get the square footage of the place, but to demarcate between the temple and the altar and worshipers. That's one part. And then there's an outer court. And we're told that the nations will trample the outer court for 42 months, 
or three and a half years. But the worshipers who stand before God in his presence will be protected. During this time, two witnesses, introduced in verse 3, will prophesy in the outer court. And there they will be trampled. This will last for 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. In verse 4, they're called the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, this is a direct reference to Zechariah 4. There, the prophet makes a promise to Zerubbabel, who had returned to rebuild the temple. He was a, uh, in the dynasty, he was in the line of David. He was kingly in his, though he didn't have the position. And then, then Joshua, the high priest at that time. Zechariah promises to be, in, in the prophecy, God promises to be with these two men as they seek to rebuild the temple destroyed more than 70 years prior. And in the, in the vision, the olive trees supply the lamps with perpetual oil. So the light of God's presence will never go out. And here's what's fascinating. With God's promises to them on this work of rebuilding and that it'll be successful, chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the lamp of God's presence, which will be in this restored temple, which is perpetually fed by these olive trees, will never go out. And it's going to happen by the spirit of God working in these people. So these two witnesses in Revelation 11 connect with this lamp which reveals the presence of God, comes by the presence of God and the power of God. They have the power to shut the sky, just as Elijah did for three and a half years. Interesting connection, and James says Elijah shut the skies for three and a half years. They have power, power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And that immediately brings to not mind Moses. During the time of ministry, these two witnesses are able to thwart those who seek to harm them with fire from their mouths. And that's kind of a curious thing. It must be symbolic. Chapter 9, verse 16, during the sixth plague... And this event takes place in the context of the sixth plague. Fire comes out of the mouths of the horses who invade the world. But it also might be a reference to Elijah, who when King Ahab was sending out soldiers to capture him, fire fell from heaven and destroyed them. In Revelation 19.15, Jesus slays his opponents with the sword of his mouth. So somehow, what comes out of their mouth protects them and destroys their persecutors. In verse 7, when the two witnesses complete their task, and not before, a demonic beast will murder them in Jerusalem. 
That's verse 8. And they will lie unburied and exposed to the elements for three and a half days. Their message will be so hated that people will throw parties over the two witnesses' death. But then to the astonishment and terror of those who delighted in their death, the witnesses will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And this will be accompanied by an earthquake with many dying in Jerusalem and others giving glory to the God of heaven out of their fear. Now, this is where I think Grant Osborne helps me, and this would be my same theological instinct. I refuse to choose where to see symbolism and where this might still symbolically happen in actual events. I think this has relevance to the church in every age. I think it, it applies directly to us. And I think that this may very well happen through two actual prophets at the end of the age. There is so much specificity to the description of this that I have a hard time. Uh, Greg Beale says, no, this is just symbolic of the church as a witness in the world. And so he discounts the possibility that these are two actual people. I, I don't think we can tell. I don't think we can tell. And I don't think we should rule something out simply because it's strange. And it is strange. The Lord promises to keep his people through every age as we worship him in his presence. We're there in the temple. That's, that's what we're participating in. We're here in a temple built together as people with our high priest leading us up in worship to the Father. We remember his sacrifice when we take communion together. But outside in the world, we must witness to who Jesus is and what he's done and proclaim the commands that extend his kingdom and will be hated by some for our message. But our ministry cannot be stopped until God thinks it complete. And then some of us may be martyred, but we will all rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and their persecution will fail. So we can take this chapter as a promise to us. Even if there is, that's just an echo of a final fulfillment at the very end of the age. Certainly at the end of the age, when the sixth trumpet sounds, this will have a final fulfillment. And that may come to pass through two actual men who proclaim this witness to the gospel. So that's the first part of chapter 11. And then we come to a glorious part of this book, the end of chapter 11. The kingdoms of the world finally submit to the kingdom of our Lord. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The seventh trumpet announces God's final judgment in which he permanently vanquishes his enemies. The 24 heavenly elders fall down and worship God for ushering in his just reign, for judging the dead and rewarding his servants, the prophets and saints. And this should encourage us because this is a promise to God's servants, both small and great. But notice this. He's worshipped not only for saving his saints, he's worshipped for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The final verse ends with his terrible judgments on the wicked. That should bring worship too. We're not having a party like those who killed the witnesses in earlier in chapter 11, delighting in their demise. We're glorifying God for finally bringing justice to the earth. So that's very briefly chapters 10 and 11. Now I want to give you a way, what can we take away from this? I want to, I want to give you some things to think about in relation to these chapters. And we're going to go backward. We're going to start at the end of chapter 11 and work our way back to the beginning of chapter 10. First thing is we can be assured that God does bring a final judgment. And that judgment will be good. That judgment will be worthy of worship. The injustice that seems to go unpunished in our day will not remain so on that day. Someday it's all going to be tied up just right. Another thing to take away is God will get his word out to the world through his witnesses. And he will defend them when they're attacked. And even if they're martyred, he will raise them from the dead and bring them to heaven. The Bible tells us that those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and say all sorts of evil things about you on account of me. Jesus also said, you will be my witnesses. So this promise is for us. I think, I think each of us needs to have a place in our heart that's ready to die for Jesus and his gospel. This has happened to Christians in every generation. And I think because Christianity has prospered, especially in Europe and the United States over the last more than 500 years, I think we think that only happens in foreign lands. It doesn't happen here. Any of us could be called to martyrdom. And I think we need to think like the early church and see that as an honor. Next takeaway, our witness is empowered by the Spirit. 
The Spirit dwells within us, and the oil of the Spirit perpetually fuels the lamp of God, revealing the goodness of God and the message of the gospel in the world. So uh, we may feel that we have little ability, that we're not very bright or not very articulate, but the Spirit of God will give us the power that we need, need, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Another takeaway, God's promises of judgment should be sweet to us, but to live through the season of tribulation before he establishes his reign will be bitter. And we agree with the Lord when he says in Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So we endure, even if it's hard. And then last, Jesus rules over the land and the sea. He gets his way in everything, even in the rebellion marshaled against him and his people. He controls it all. He is sovereign over all. So in our little world, when we see things going bad, when we see that we may have to give a testimony that will be considered hate speech, whatever that might look like. We know God, God has this planned out and worked out. And as I've said privately in the past, in the midst of intense trial, the worst thing that could happen to me is I might die. And then comes resurrection. So, as we read of God's terrible judgments on the earth in the book of Revelation, and we realize that we must endure some of them with everybody else, and we realize that we must witness to Jesus despite opposition, we have a promise in these two chapters of protection. And after we die, a resurrection to eternal life. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, it, there, there is a tendency and a temptation to isolate portions of this book that speak to hardship for us and then imagine what that will be like for us. But in fact, you are calling us to see Jesus in these chapters and his care for us and his protection of us and his promise to keep us and his promise to raise us from the dead that we might dwell with him forever and ever in the new heavens and a new earth, where we will see the face of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, as we continue through this book, that you will open our eyes to it, and it will become, it'll become sweet to us as we eat it. And we will rejoice not only in the presence of God by the Spirit in our hearts on this day, not only the promise of the gospel to forgive us this day, but the promise that you are going to wrap it all up one day, all in goodness, all in justice and righteousness. Fill us with hope from the contents of this book, we pray. Bless us for reading and listening to this book, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.